What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads. Enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants. And they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp Internal Data 2021. Based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Now here we go. You really have to try to remember and remind yourself what you're doing and not change your business model all the time. And then coupled with what just happened with the pandemic, where we just spent two straight years of pivoting, I have to keep rewinding and saying, how did this start? What made it successful? And how do you keep it that way? Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. There are folks out there that see the world differently, and they're building very different restaurants. In reinventing the model, they have no competition, and there's a ton for us to learn from the trail that they're blazing. Today we chat with Chef Melissa Martin of the Mosquito Supper Club, a new kind of restaurant located in a very old place. In our conversation, Melissa shares the inspiration behind the concept and how she's built a national audience off the back of a local restaurant. I think I became a chef because I like to work with my hands. I always liked working with my hands since I was young. And I was always looking to do something tactile, I suppose. And then I went to school. I went to college uh, for English literature and writing. And I was sort of on an academic path. And then Hurricane Katrina hit. And I lost the many jobs that I had because I was in my early 20s. So that's when you have like two or three jobs. Sure. <laughs> so I lost my job at Loyola University and I lost my job with uh, the Lindy Box Center teaching adults how to read. And my other job was working at the Crescent City Farmers Market, you know, helping connect farmers to the city so we could bridge relationships with um, restaurants and with the community. And so when I came back from, oh, and then I catered on the side, <laughs> you know, and so like that, the catering was the side hustle, not everything else. Yeah. And so then I catered on the side. And then whenever Hurricane Katrina hit, I lost all my jobs. And so I had to figure out what was the thing that I could do. I was a single mom. I had a five-year-old daughter. And there was nothing in New Orleans to do, but I had to be here. My house flooded, but my child was in school here. And yes, her school flooded and there was no school, but they were reopening it soon, 20 minutes outside of the city. But she was domiciled here and I had to be here. My family was here. And so I started cooking for 
groups that would come into the city to help rebuild. So Habitat for Humanity, groups that were coming in to help build the Musicians Village. So lots of different groups coming in, and I just made sure that they had a breakfast, had a lunch to take with them. And then when they came back, it was a camp situation. When they came back, they had dinner. And I, of course, you know, was always over budgets because I cooked these not elaborate, but things like really farm to table, beautiful meals. It started getting out that I was cooking these beautiful meals and people were like, can we come to dinner? (laughs) And it was a very community oriented and I was able to keep in touch with people who had come back to the city. And that was really great. And I did that for a really long time. And then I decided I needed a break from the city. And so I took a break and went to California and I made wine at my friend's winery. And then I started sort of picking up jobs in restaurants in Marin County and the Bay Area and the Napa Valley. And I think that sort of opened my eyes up to a different style of cooking. Of course, I grew up in like a seasonal cooking situation down on the bayou, a very sustainable food culture. But I got to see it from a different angle in San Francisco and in Napa Valley. And of course, on a different level, I mean, it's a $350 person tasting menus 17 years ago. So I don't know what they cost now. But I really, really enjoyed that situation. And I really, really soaked up what was happening. And so then I spent some time in California. And I don't know, I was driving in California one day. And I was like, where am I? I have to go back to Louisiana. I always had this idea brewing that I wanted to do something small. I knew I didn't want a big restaurant. I knew I didn't want an overdone build out that would cost me a million dollars. And so I knew I wanted something small. And in my head, it was like 12 people. I would cook for 12 people. And so whenever I started, I decided on Mosquito Supper Club, I wanted to just do farm table cooking. I had just recently come back from California. But I really, really sort of examined it and thought about it. And I thought about what's missing in New Orleans, because you can't just cook what you want to cook. If you're going to stay relevant, it's not going to be trendy in a classical sense. So I just kept thinking about people who would come to New Orleans and say, well, where can we go eat Cajun food? And I really just didn't have an answer for them. You know, there were definitely like dishes and restaurants that reminded me of home, uh, certainly at some of Donald Link restaurants. But most of the other restaurants that were serving Cajun food were not using good ingredients. And so it was very far from what I imagined or far from what I lived as Cajun food. And so I decided it was going to be Cajun food. And then I just, you know, did it. (laughs) I just, uh, (laughs) my first dinner, it was 24 people. It was $25 to come. It was five courses. And I just invited people who I knew would talk, you know, so these are really social people, unlike myself. (laughs) And so I invited people that I knew who would talk in the community, who I knew from being in the restaurant industry, the people who go out to a restaurant and take a picture of themselves at the restaurant. And it went off really well. It was fun. It was like hip. And then that's how we grew. I invited some people who would write. And one of my good friends, Wayne Curtis, wrote about me. And that was sort of my first piece from a long time ago. And I have to be really honest with the public. When I started Mosquito Supper Club, I could not cook the food like I can cook it now. Like I can cook it with my eyes closed now. 
But when I started it, I was still learning how to cook this food I grew up eating. It started off as a journey, a journey into learning how to cook it, a journey into recording it and getting it down on paper, and a journey into sharing it and explaining to people about this sustainable little fishing village I grew up in and how vastly it's changed just in my lifetime and and so much more in my parents' lifetime. And then also the threat of extinction, because that's a reality for Chauvin, Louisiana, and a lot of places in Louisiana. But I settled on 24 people because I kept thinking, what can I honestly do by myself if I have to? How many Mm -hmm. people could I cook for, serve, do the dishes for if I have to, if my employees don't show up? Because I had been a chef, I'd run other people's kitchens, I knew the reality. And so I was like, I think I could do 24, (laughs) which in reality, it's too hard for one person. (laughs) For sure. But yeah, I started with 24 and I started with a couple of days a month. And then I gradually grew from there, just adding a day a week or adding a couple more days a month. And then I gradually turned very quickly, actually turned what was just sort of a pop-up where I would rent other people's places I found my own space pretty quickly and turned it into a restaurant and turned it into a business. And it was always a very small business, although it had lots of different aspects to it, like piece of it that I was going to write a cookbook or all the other pieces that I wanted to use it as an educational tool. But it always struggled as a small business because businesses are hard to run. They're expensive to run. I created it for a small amount of people. And I created it as a family style prefix because I didn't want any food waste. And I wanted to know exactly how many people I was cooking for. I didn't want you to have choices, sad to say, (laughs) because I wanted to be able to get what I could get and the best of what I could get and what I could handle at 24 people. Because at that point I was literally like going to my cousin's boat and getting the shrimp right off the boat and I was headlessing the shrimp and we were storing the shrimp at my mom's house in her chest freezer. And then I would like go pick up my shrimp once a week. And then we would sort of do this process where like I had turned my parents' house into like a shrimp dock processing facility. (laughs) And we didn't even have a backpack machine. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a disaster. Not a disaster. It was fun. There was a lot of passion in the beginning for this project. So I mean, I love headlessing shrimp and, you know, uh, putting away shrimp with my parents. I've done that my whole life. But there certainly was a lot of passion in the beginning for this project that was so like near and dear to my heart. And most of the people that worked for me were also had the same sort of passion for the project in the beginning, which is kind of what made it so electrifying. If you have nothing and you want to create something, you have to create with nothing. I always say something out of nothing. And I always tell that to young chefs, like start off small. You don't need the things you need. Even like my friend, Chris Hanna, who I think got named bartender of the year by Tales with Cocktail or something. He's has so many accolades and he always says like, people are not going to remember the ice. They're probably not even going to remember the glass. They're going to remember the drink and the hospitality. You know, so it's like if something tastes good, it doesn't matter what vessel it's in, your senses and your taste buds will know. And if something feels good, it doesn't matter if it's at a folding table or a handmade table, it feels good. 
I think that's a really easy concept for most people to understand. I want to talk about pressure because in the traditional restaurant model, the way it works is you borrow or steal a million dollars. You build out this restaurant. And then when you open, you open seven days a week, one to three services a day, and you're scrambling because not only do you need to make money to sustain the current operation, but you also have to pay back this million dollars that you Mm -hmm. borrowed from friends and family or got a loan from a bank. There's a lot of pressure. And Mm -hmm. what I can tell you from firsthand experience is that you don't make the best decisions for you and you don't make even the best decisions for the business because there's all of this external pressure, right? That's been created through the creation, the establishment of restaurants in this specific way. But it seems like in low pressure is probably the wrong way to describe it. But it does seem like you set yourself up for success in a really intentional and methodical way. I try to. I always kind of laugh at this thought, though, because when you're starting a small business and you do not have the funds to do it, you have to do everything yourself. So it's a circus in the beginning. And so there's no sustainability in that. What I did for many years is completely unsustainable. Even though it was small, it still is unsustainable for to just be a healthy person and to just deal with the pressure of trying to keep it going, to deal with like basically taking all the money you have and risking it on another dinner and hoping Mm -hmm. that you can pay it back. Because I literally did not make money for years, years. I was living on nothing and taking odd jobs, consulting or working at other restaurants or doing so many other things. I mean, I signed the book deal, which was really, really helpful because I got an advance, a very small advance, but still that was helpful. But I was living off of nothing and the pressure and the stress was quite overwhelming. I also had a teenager at this point, their preteen or a teenager, and my marriage fell apart, you know? So (laughs) the pressure was quite real. And even now, we're in our ninth year right now. I always say that I created this thing and now my employees get to enjoy it (laughs) because (laughs) it's a very like nice, easy place to work because we are only open four days a week. We don't turn tables. We only serve, you know, about 40 people a night plus our bar business which is maybe 15 people a night. So it's in that way, it is sustainable. But every year, and I often tell my employees this too, every year that we are open, the stakes get higher. And so what was us in the beginning in the first year is not what we are now. We're sort of like a vision of that dream that I tried to create Mm-hmm. We're not the same place. And every year we're a different place, not only in our employees, but in our business model, because we have to. As soon as you start getting press, especially to people who don't read, people don't know what they're coming to. Right. Now they associate a price point with a certain type of food. Mm-hmm. So my price point costs a certain amount of money because we only want to serve a certain amount of people 
because we want to create this experience that is like attainable and sustainable for us as people and as a restaurant. Mm -hmm. We know we cannot get the quality of ingredients we want to serve at this restaurant unless we charge a certain amount of money. And we also know that I'm not going to be able to take care of the building that I in or the people that work for me if we're doing service more than four days a week. We still work five days a week, but we're only doing service four. But people associate a certain price point with a certain type of experience. They walk in and they're like, I paid $105 or $110 and I bought this wine pairing and now I expect like some smoke and mirrors. You know, I expect something different than what we've done. What we've done and what we do tonight at 7.30 is the exact same thing that we did the first dinner. That has not changed. It's a confidence game. It's an internal game that you have to play with yourself because everyone's going to question the price point. And you're right. I think anything north of 50 to $75 per person, people have a very specific vision for what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. And being in the service industry, we want to make people happy. So we Mm -hmm. kind of become apologetic. And when you look at your business model, you look at a prefig, you're telling people what to have, you know? And so if I come in and I'm like, I'm allergic to these things. I'm also gluten intolerant. I'm a vegan. Like this is not the place for you. And so there's got to be confidence in being able to say, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And so if that doesn't work for you, then you're just not our customer. Yeah. Talk to me about building that confidence over time, because I mean, maybe it came naturally to you, but it certainly didn't come naturally to me. I don't think it came naturally. I think one of my best friends who's a restaurateur and owns a couple of business always says, oh my God, if you just had some confidence, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't even know what you would do. I think that I'm a creative person and I am a project person. So more than confident, <laughs> I just like projects and I like seeing things through and I like creating things. I think that Mosquito Supper Club is a great curation project for me. It is my big art project. And so I think the confidence comes in just this thing that I like to tinker with and this thing that I created for people to enjoy this thing that I love. And it's actually in our handbook for my employees Whenever you make art, you cannot expect everyone to like it. You actually don't want everyone to like it. But the people that get it are going to get it. You don't make art for other people. You make art for yourself. And I remind them that the restaurant, it's for us and we share it, but it's not for everyone. And you just have to remind yourself, of course, everyone is so affected by negative reviews. They don't affect me as much as they used to. When they affect me, it's when they're completely false. You know, when someone will say something like, she's not even using Louisiana seafood. And I'm like, but I just drove to Lafitte today to pick up the crab, you know, and it's like, they don't actually know. Since we have Food Network and Chef's Table or I don't know, I don't watch any of these shows. I don't even know what they're called. Top Chef. That's what it's called. Since we have all these things, everybody is a food critic. Everybody's a judge and everybody wants to say something 
But I think that our industry is so hard and our stress levels are so high all the time trying to run these businesses. I mean, I have been open for three weeks for my new season. And in three weeks, I have fired three people. Mm. And that is a really big deal. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. I think you have to learn how to, I always say like Georgia O'Keefe, flattery and criticism go down the same drain and that's why I'm free. That's been my (laughs) motto for a long time because it has to be. And with young cooks who are all like, I want 50 best, I want Michelin, I want this, I want that. People that I try to, people who want what I have. And so they come to work for me and they want to know how to get it. I try to remind them there was never a moment where I wanted any of those things. There was always moments where I just wanted to be happy. I wanted to be able to take care of my kid. I wanted to be able to like, pay for my living expenses. I wanted to be able to take vacation every once in a while. I wanted to be able to write a book. I wanted to be able to keep creating in different ways and spreading a message that was like really important to me. When it becomes a business though, as a restaurant, eventually whatever creative endeavor you're doing in the food industry eventually becomes a business. And then you're running a business and you're having to make business decisions I have to remind that to my employees all the time. Mosquitoes talking, not me. If it was me, we'd be having so much fun, but we're not now. Because <laughs> when it becomes a business and sort of the sheen what wears off, it becomes way more difficult. It's never the food. It's always the guests and the employees. Right. And trying to manage that and then manage people in the last couple of years, manage so many different types of emotions, so many different mental instabilities, so many different addictions, so many things that I really, as like a person and as a business owner recently had to say, I have to stop taking on projects, people as projects. I can't help people anymore. I have to run the business. I mean, I have a young chef who's 21 and she's my AMC chef, uh, got pregnant last year and had a baby and I paid her maternity leave and her baby's almost one years old and she handled it like a pro this year. So she's a single mom now, but she's doing great. I told all my employees, 
Nola is my last project. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, you know, because emotionally you get so involved with your employees because sure. you're at your restaurant all the time. And that is very difficult because in the end, you're not your employees' friends. You are the employer. And so that's a very, very like hard bridge to cross and to understand. And I think in the beginning, when you start something, it's so fun. It's so exciting. Everyone's friends. But then as time goes by, people leave. They should. Your business changes. And I think that's a difficult thing for an owner. You have to be sort of robotic. I mean, certainly you can connect with your employees, but there's kind of a robotic feel to it after a while. Here's the dynamic that changed for me personally. I cut my teeth in restaurants and bars in Baton Rouge. And there was always this very familial feeling. Mm -hmm. And so when I became an entrepreneur and a restaurateur in Los Angeles, I brought that sense of family into the restaurants and the bar concepts that I created, only to realize down the road that that was an incredibly bad mistake. Yes. Because families lie to each other and families don't work to be their best. And teams <laughs> do, right? <laughs> when you run your business, when you run your restaurant is a team built on like trust, transparency, and accountability. A lot of things changed. Something that really resonated with me that you said, and it didn't happen until four years after I opened the bar, we became a dry house. In all of my locations, we were a dry house. You can't drink there on shift or off shift, which was a right. massive cultural change. Yes. But we're a team, right? So there are no more shift drinks and there is no more taking a shot with a customer. When no. you go to the bank, the bank teller isn't knocking back shots with other customers. We are a professional environment and we are here to service them and make sure they have fun. And we have fun by serving them well, not by having a good time. Yeah, and you can leave. And if you'd like, you can go to the bar that's open. Cure is right around the corner. That was a big deal because I saw addiction and I saw people drinking on sure. the job and I saw people using in so many different ways. And, you know, I was like, yeah, we have to taste the wine to make sure it's good before we serve it. But we know the line and yep. it's, we don't cross it anymore. And I tell people when they're in the interview, like, can you handle not doing shots with your customer? Can you handle not having a drink here? Certainly when I won the Beard Award, I wasn't there. I wasn't in Chicago. I was in France with my daughter. But I said, open up a bottle of champagne. Y'all celebrate for me. Because my team is the reason why I can write. Because the idea that a chef works in their restaurant and writes their book at the same time is not correct. <laughs> no one can do that. Not if you're actually writing your book. And I've seen chefs have like a team of 16 people working on their book or whatever, but there has to be like um, some transparency. And yeah, my team allows me to be able to be creative with books and in other ways. So yes, they were able to celebrate, but no, having like a dry house makes a better team. So I want to track back from living hand to mouth and taking odd jobs while running Mosquito Supper Club mm -hmm. to tooling around France while you're getting a James Beard award and your team running your <laughs> restaurant on your behalf. Because we kind of glazed over the middle part, which I think is really what everyone listening wants to hear about. Yes, I can trace back every success I've ever had and every failure 
to specific yeah. decisions that I made. Can you run me through the transitions and the decisions that you made that took you from one place to the next? It's hard because whenever you're doing it, you're just working so hard. Like, are you making a decision or is the restaurant making the decision for you? Because the restaurant, it required me to be there on Thursday over 14 hours a day because I didn't have any money. I had somebody come in and prep the night before some of the ingredients, but then I would come in and I was cooking from whatever, seven, eight in the morning. And then I was there till the end of the shift. And there was nobody to bring in because there was no money to bring in anybody. I don't know if there's specific things that I can say like that change things. Of course, whenever I got a liquor license, it was the first time I was able to hire someone and put them on salary. That liquor license also allowed me to hire a sous chef for the first time. Adding another day allowed us to bring on another employee. I did it as slow as I could. I think that's the thing that made what I did successful is I moved so slowly. So this show in and of itself is just a very selfish exercise. I only talk to the people I want to talk to. I only ask the questions that I want to ask because genuinely I want to learn as much as possible. And something you touched on that I hear time and time again, and I just want to highlight and get your thoughts on, because I do think that it's, it's a touch point is that as soon as you started making money, as soon as there were lines of revenue, you invested in people, not product, right? Because the answer is who, not what, right? And I'm still investing in people because the people that worked for me in the beginning are the reason that I am successful. And I know that. I mean, here's a quick personal story, but I had 40 people in the restaurant. It was the beginning of the season. I was having a wonderful time. They, everybody was amazing. At an eight top of kids, it was a rehearsal supper. It was a private. At an eight top of kids, and I had just gone out with a tray of ice cream. It was pink. They were so happy. I was like, wow, I really get to do this. I think we were three years into being open. It was in maybe 2016. Yeah. So I think we were three years into being open and I went out to take the trash out. And uh, normally I don't take the trash out to be completely honest, but I went out to take the trash out and my husband was there. And so I thought something had happened to my child and he told me he was leaving me and he was divorcing me and he never loved me and all the things you say when you're leaving someone. And I went back into my restaurant and I went into my kitchen and I told them what had just happened and everyone was in shock including myself. And I was pretty much in a coma for like the next six months. The people that were there at that restaurant, they worked with me for the next couple of years through the worst years of my life. Not only was I going through a divorce and raising a transgender child, but I literally was standing at the cutting board, crying into bell peppers and celery yeah. and just trying to get through each day and a place that was, I love being inside the work, a place that was my escape, my kitchen, my restaurant became like a coffin to me because I was just in so much pain. My house was a coffin. The restaurant was a coffin. 
But the people that worked side by side with me and let me go through the pain and helped me build the restaurant, even under these circumstances, but those people are the people that are responsible for the success, for seeing that we still had a vision and we still had something to do. And even though it was the worst of times, I think the year before we had dealt with one of my employees, dad had died a sudden death and a death by alcoholism. And so it's like we had gone through so much together that we kind of couldn't separate from each other. I always say the restaurant industry is also a little codependent. Sure. <laughs> but I had invested in people in the beginning while paying people more than I could pay myself or paying people certainly before I paid myself. Everyone says that's the wrong business model, but that's kind of not how I felt about it. And then I continued to invest in people and not necessarily always the right people, but you do your best whenever you're bringing people on. And even now, my payroll is always at like 40%, but that's because I know what it costs to live. And I know how hard these people work and I'm never going to pay them less than the business can pay them. And that was always huge. And I'm never going to compromise on ingredients. And if that means I have to raise the price of what the experience is, or we have to figure out something else, then those are some concessions that I will never make. And, and sometimes it's sad because restaurants don't have a lot of money. Unless you're a big corporate place, they don't have a lot of money. And sometimes it breaks your heart that you can only pay your porter who's been working with you for 13 years, like $40,000 and give them a couple of bonuses throughout the year. But it's like you pay as much as you possibly can and still make the business work because if the business doesn't work, no one gets paid. So I think that that's a hard thing too, because whenever you're building, you don't have enough money to pay people. And I think that I'm really honest with people about what we can afford. And, and then I pay people more when we can. And I'm very transparent about that. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. Lord knows you've broken many of those rules. But if we were to take a high-level perspective, how would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think that unfortunately, restaurants are going to have to be more expensive because if we want to pay people more, we're going to have to pay more. And I think that because of that, they're going to become more luxury experiences and more where you just can't go eat out every night or whatever. But I think that that's important that that happens because people need to learn how to feed themselves and I'm lazy a lot. I don't want to cook all the time, but if I'm not eating at a really good place, a place where I know it's good, if I'm at an in-between place, I'm always really unhappy. I think the other day we got takeout and it was over $80 and it was like two pastas and a salad. And, you know, I boo date the whole time because it wasn't good. And um, <laughs> I think that people can do so much better in their own kitchens and then celebrate whenever they need to celebrate or treat themselves to date night and have a good meal at a place that pays their employees well, is a good employer, is buying good food, is a good like symbol for the community. 
we know who those places are in our small communities. I know what restaurants I'm supporting and I know why I'm supporting them. And so, yeah, I'd like to see restaurants change to be more models for young people, for communities. That's Melissa Martin. For more on Mosquito Supper Club, visit mosquitosupperclub.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.